You're listening to the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast with your host, Don DiMuccio. Rock and roll. 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 Stay tuned for more rock and roll. All right. Welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. I am your fully vaccinated and semi-housebroken host, Don DiMuccio. And this show is another big one. We've got one of the most instantly recognizable voices in rock and roll, responsible for classics like The Grand Illusion, Lady, Come Sail Away, and The Best of Times, just to name a few. He's an interviewer's dream guest because he doesn't hold back on anything. And he can discuss any topic you throw at him, from the music industry to the human condition. He's a true one of a kind, former keyboardist and frontman for the classic rock band Styx, the inimitable Dennis DeYoung.
When you list the greatest vocalists in the history of the rock era, you think of names like Roy Orbison, Freddie Mercury, Elvis, Jay Black. But any such list would be criminally incomplete without the name of today's guest. As keyboardist, founding member, and principal songwriter for the band Styx, he scored hit after top 10 hit with rock standards like Babe, Come Sail Away, The Best of Times, and released consecutive multi-platinum selling albums, including their 1981 masterpiece, Paradise Theater. Now as a legend gone solo, this year saw the release of 26 East Volume 2, a studio project which he's calling his last. Don't worry, kids, I'm going to talk him out of it. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Dennis DeYoung. Jesus, double D. That introduction was longer than my career, for God's sake. Well, I'm sorry. Um, We're out of time, Dennis, but thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. You kids pick up your souvenir posters as you leave the building. Look, um, you know, nice company you put me in. And, uh, you know, Roy Orbison. Oh, my God. How many times did I listen to I'm Crying and Only the Lonely as Mm. a teenager? And my friend Larry... Uh, he, he had a little more money than our family. His dad bought him a webcore tape recorder and uh, we used to tape things off, <laughs> off the radio. Off the radio. Yeah. yeah, so we listened to, uh, you know, the great Orbison forever and ever. And, you know, Elvis, there was, you know, nobody's better than Elvis. Nobody. Nobody can do everything he did. And uh, there you go. So thanks for putting me, you know, Jay Black, he's calling with his regrets. <laughs> I got to tell you, I was putting this together and I said, let me look up that ridiculous Rolling Stone magazine, 100 Greatest Singers. I'm going to see where Dennis comes in. <sighs> I'm still looking. I'm behind Tiny Tim. Oh, see, I didn't get 101 to 110. That's well, the problem. I think it was 275,042. Well, That's where I was. What I the think hell is wrong with them? I don't know. Look, I don't. if you look at the... Here's the thing about... You want to talk about the human voice? Here it is. How can millions of people... Right? Mm. Like Luciano Pavarotti yep. and, and millions like Getty Lee. You explain that to me. I mm. mean, how can how many, uh, Tennessee Ernie Ford, right? And Kristen Chenoweth. The, the human voice is a mystery to the people who have it and to those who listen. So I did a, a Facebook post on this some years ago, right? I discussed my favorite singers and the fact that millions find me, someone they like to listen to, while an equal or even a larger number would rather have root canal than listen to me. There's something about the human voice, for the most part, that even the greatest singers in the world, you can find people who just don't like them. So I look at Rolling Stone. Um, I don't know. What am I supposed to say? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of dovetailing into the whole thing where critics were terrible to you guys and just unnecessarily so. And I never understood. And not just you guys. There were a lot of bands that if you didn't fit into their clique, they just had nothing nice to say. And usually those are the best-selling bands. Grand Funk Railroad is a great example. Just mercifully, can't say the word, lampooned by the press. Uh, here's here's the thing I want to talk to you but I'll, briefly I'll say this recently I went back and tried to because now with the internet mm. you can find out which girl you insulted in sixth grade um, I went back and looked at all the reviews I just Rolling Stone right because they're the ones that are printed they weren't really that bad to us I mean you wanted them to rave but you know the first album they, they reviewed was Equinox they gave it a good review um, so I went back and looked and I said well they're not that bad I mean they're just like all the other bands of that particular era, okay, the middle 70s to late 70s, those bands did not find favor with what you would call the intelligentsia, mm. which is giving them so much credit they don't deserve. They are the biggest jack wagons God ever invented, which are, are rock critics. Yeah. We all know what Zappa said about them. And I'll tell you, here's why. Proof positive. Forget what my opinion is. 
I went back. This is fun to do when you're as old as I am and you're and you and you're and you're uh, under house arrest with the quarantine. Mm. So I'm reading. I'm thinking, okay, let me see what they say about Night at the Opera. Okay, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Okay, they reviewed the album, Rolling Stone. They never mentioned the song. Now wait a minute. <laughs> okay, they mentioned a song that I didn't know. And I do know most of the Queen music. Yeah. Not all of it. I only I think I had one or two of their albums. So I went and read uh, the, the Grand Illusion album. The only song they really mentioned was Miss America. They didn't mention Come Sail Away. So my, my theory, which can be expounded on, I went and looked at all kinds of bands. You know what they did to Led Zeppelin in the beginning? Okay, so... These people who sit and write about music have never gotten, they've gotten almost nothing right, okay? I don't know why that is. It's like birds of a feather. I always called it the German Shepherd School of Upward Mobility. <laughs> Whatever the people in New York said or in England said, then the writers in Des Moines or wherever they are stuck their nose up the ass of the dog in front of it and because they wanted to get hired at the big publications, and they had to belong to that club that believed this is good and this is bad. You can go right on down the line. There's no more homogeneous bunch of people who write about music, uh, write about any criticism than the, the music journalists. And the, so, ir the irony is, in the early 60s, you know, there was no rock journalism. There were music no, critics. They no, were late 60s, late 60s. Late 60s, so when, sure. Yeah, but, when, it, well, yeah, yeah. So here it is. Finally, the music business becomes culture, and you're writing you know, entire magazines about it. And yet, sometimes they're trying to destroy bands just as much as criticizing them, if that makes sense. I think they're, they're, they, they want to be great writers. And they pick music. They don't, people say, oh, they're just failed musicians. I don't find that. I think they're failed writers. They're not failed musicians. So when they wrote, they had a premise that developed in the late 60s and early 70s. It went something like this. The people who invented rock and roll were rebels, were protesting against the man and the music that had come before him. Okay, this is the premise. It's all about the man, the establishment, and this crazy wild-eyed idea that only the rebels can play rock and roll music. Well, I'm sorry, Elvis Presley was a mama's boy. Mm -hmm. He was a sweet guy. He wanted to buy his mother a Cadillac and a house, which he did. Chuck Berry, right? Mm. He wanted the money in a paper bag at the end of the gig, and he wanted to drive around in his Cadillac. And I, I can go right on down the line. Little Richard, he wasn't... He, Come on, these people were just playing music that they semi-invented by hearing the styles of music when the black culture and the white culture in the South came together. All right? right? And that's how it got created. Nobody was trying to protest against the man. They wanted to be the man. They wanted a Cadillac. So that whole premise, I, I, I listened to it, and, and oh, yeah, and, and now rock and roll musicians, they don't have to play so good or sing so good. They just have to have energy and have to have and be anarchist and crash their heads against the wall. I think, no, these guys, they could play. They could sing. If they, they couldn't write, they got people to write for them. It's just the whole idea of it sickens me. And so they carried it into the 70s. Right, because oh, it's the establishment, it's the man. The first thing any person that makes a record anywhere does, they sit down and they sign a record agreement, mostly with multinational corporations to decide how much money they get per sale of record. Now, if they're they're not they're not protesting against the man, they are the man. Right. You are the man. Right. Bruce, 
Bruce, you're not. Pro- I'm not protesting. I want to belong to the good the club where people like me, and you know they pay me money for doing it. That's just bullshit. And they continue to say it. That's why they like punk so much. And let me tell you something. Somewhere in the in, in like like '76, uh, punk music was in in its infancies, uh, and it's coming from the east for the most part. Although people claim it's the Ramones, who cares? Let me just say this: it's garbage. All that music, punk, punk, punk. It's garbage. Look at the sales. I looked it up. I got nothing to do. I look at the sales. Uh, Ramones just went gold in 2014. Just went gold. With all the stuff that said about the Ramones and the Sex Pistols, and I, I went to the top 20 uh, punk bands of all time by Rolling Stone, and I listened because I did it a little bit in the, in the day, and I looked up their sales. They don't sell. It's a, it's a thing that's created. Once right. again, in the mind of the journalist who yep. thinks some sort of romantic notion that we have to, we are, we are the, the, we're the people's people and we can't be controlled by corporations. And you know what I say? Bullshit. Good All for right, you. I'm, I'm done. And Good so anyway, you. whatever they say, okay, these, these jack wagons, uh, I believe a hundred percent when they say something nice about me. <laughs> You're fucking nuts. I love it. It's true though. Of course it's true. You look know, it up. I, look it up. Uh, any journalists out there, look up the sales of punk music, of your te- top 10 favorite bands. They don't sell. You write about it. And so when Styx finally broke big, huge, in 1977, right? Mm. Uh, I remember we went over to England. We were in the height of the punk movement. And so uh, it had really reached America, and, and, and really America never did embrace it, except the journalists. Right. They keep writing about it. Uh, you want it? You want it? You want to? You want to cause schizophrenia for a, a rock critic? Make a, a, a punk prog album. They won't know what they'll probably blow their brains out. Anyway, I digress. Name, Next question. Name one punk song that ever hit the top one hundred. That that is in, okay. Look, I, I'm not going to look at chart positions. I'm going to just look at sales. Well, because, isn't that based on sales though? At least no, 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 no. Listen, radio airplay, okay, and sales are two different things. Okay. They, 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 they cross paths all the time. But just because something doesn't sell or something doesn't get on the radio doesn't mean it isn't good and doesn't mean people won't find it and buy it. They will. But what I'm saying is this, that music never sold to this day, yet it's like the Red Badge of Courage. If you're a punk band, you're already 50% of the way there. Right. For the rock critic. Now, I said to all rock critics, challenge me. Come on any show. I'll discuss it with you. You were wrong. You were wrong about all those bands in the middle to late 70s who sold millions of records by d- d- just doing one simple thing, making music and songs that people liked and wanted to hear 50 years later. That's all they did. So I'm done. I'm off my soapbox. I have to be careful because I might twist my ankle and break a hip. Let's talk about the new album. What album? Oh, my new album. Because there's so much there to unpack. And uh, right off the bat, track one is an uh, homage to four gentlemen that shaped my life when I first heard them at the age of eight in 1979. I think you might have heard them a little earlier than that. Tell me uh, how they impacted your life. Since this is my last album I'm going to record, I picked, it's volume one and two because we just written too many songs. I only wanted to do one. Then the record company uh, 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 Double D said this to me. If you make them in the two, we'll double the guarantee. Now, they're an Italian company, and I thought, that's double the lira. So I'm going to do that. So this last album, 
The titles of my albums are 26 East. That's the house where John and the two Panazzo brothers, the two Italian kids from across the street, mm. got together and formed the nucleus of sticks, 1962, two years before the Beatles. So uh, I thought that's the title. I'm going to start this last album where it began, So Shall It End. I'll, I'll do a thing about the Beatles. <clears throat> I'll write the song and I'll try to emulate them musically which is a nice way of saying ripping off and con and construct a song where I take their song titles and weave them into a lyric that simply tells my story as a fan, not my story as a musician. And hopefully it would connect to, you know, all kinds of people across the globe who love these guys. You're too young. No one who wasn't there can truly understand it. It's like being a parent. You think you know what it's like? Yeah, wait till the baby shoots out and you hold it in your arms. Right. Then you'll know. Right. If you didn't see the Beatles and if you weren't part of it when it happened, you can't understand the profound effect it had on billions of people and millions of musicians. And I say millions. People saw that and, like I say in the second verse, and the whole world formed a band. They did. People, if you didn't have a band, kids said, I got to do that, man. That's right. joy. That's it's, it's excitement. I want to be part of it. And so I started it with Hello Goodbye. Um, I didn't fail. They they play it on they play it on Beatle channels. So if I wrote a song that they play on Beatle channels, uh, this is good. You're doing all right. And, yes. Yeah, I mean, and I'm not going to do the 30th uh, imitation of I Am the Walrus or uh, <laughs> what's the other one? Uh, uh, Come together. Uh, please, I, I I don't know. Have I ever heard a song? covered by somebody else that I thought was better than the original of the Beatles? I can name I'll one. To, I can name one. It? Okay. Joe Cocker's Little Help for My Friends. Absolutely. You're right. Thank you very much, Mrs. Uh, Saga Tucker. We'll talk to you in the morning. No, he did. That's a, that, it's a completely different song. Yeah. That's about and it, it you're though. Right. That's about it. That's it. Yeah. Uh, the rest of them give me the, even that, even saying that. Mm. I like the original. Oh, yeah. So, you totally go. different vibe. <clears throat> So I did this song. I'm happy with it. Boom. If you like the Beatles and you want to know where I came from, as I've said, Adam and Eve were McCartney and Lennon, and and the rest of us were begat from them. Exactly right. I start with the 2-9 back in 64, which is the date I saw them on the Ed Sullivan Show, and my life was changed because, like I said, I play accordion, um, and I've, I've, I'm, I'm only an accordion player Beatle dreaming. I saw that, and I thought... Man, we got to start playing rock and roll music, boys. Well, let and, me ask you. You said you formed the band with the Panazzo Brothers in 62. Give me an idea what the material was. Um, American Standards. We are playing weddings. We were trying to get hired. I played accordion. You know, you go to, imagine going to a wedding in those days. I'm the guy playing the songs on accordion. That's what we did. Oh, we I see. Play, so you're not yeah, doing Four play. Seasons or Beach Boys <laughs> or things like that. We didn't even have one singer. Maybe me, but I, mean, I only sang a couple songs. Oh, it was an instrumental band. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, you know, the Beatles said... You got to sing, and you got to play, and you got to write. That's what they said. So, um, no, I would. I sang. Here's what I sang. I sang Misty, the Johnny yeah. Mathis thing, and um, uh, I think I sing five foot two eyes are blue, but oh, what those five feet can do has any but that kind of stuff, because we were we started out trying to please our parents. Right. I was the, the Panazos were twelve. Wow. I was fourteen. We we want to make mama and daddy happy. So was that the trade wins? Yeah, Trade Wins was, oh, was. The, our first okay. name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
talking about the Beatles, I would imagine you guys were putting the final touches on Paradise Theater when Lennon was shot. Do you remember where you were that night? Uh, yeah, I was watching uh, um, Monday Night Football. I was watching when Howard Cosell announced that he had been shot. So I was sitting on the floor in my family room in my house in Frankfurt. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. it you know, it was, it was like, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, yeah, that's surreal. Mm. That can't be true. Mm. And um, was I surprised? Of course I was surprised. I think you, you, you have to think back and say, why? Well, there is, look it, there's no answer to the question. I'm sorry, except for humans wiring in their brain uh, can get hijacked. Right. And people start thinking things that have nothing whatsoever to do with the actual world they live in. Did you ever have any of that in terms of crazy fans writing you guys or stalking or anything? When we first hit it big, we had a fan club. Had it for some time. And I was so excited because, you know, now I'm a Beatle. I have a fan club. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I said, send me some of this stuff. They sent me a box. And I read about 20 of the of the letters. And I said to my manager, don't ever send me this stuff again. I never <laughs> want to see it. No, because um, what your fans will say to you, here, here, here's, the, here's what you don't want to hear. I think you are the greatest band who ever lived. I live and die and breathe for all your music. And my second favorite band are the Archies. Oh. You see, you, you don't want to oh, hear that. Oh, I don't that. want to hear that. No. Uh, yeah. You're going to hear stuff that you go, what? So I don't, <laughs> want to, I don't want to know what my fans are thinking. I don't want them to tell me I should do this. This is my favorite thing about what you do because I believe that's my decision. And I don't want anybody else, you know, clouding the picture. We had the luxury of never having been A&R'd by anybody at uh, A&M Records. No one told us what to record. We did what we wanted to do, self-produced the albums, and sent them to the record company. They promoted them. That was the deal. So if, if I heard what uh, Double D over here said, you know, my favorite thing, I don't care. Because <laughs> then the next time I sit down, I'm saying, if I don't please Double D, Right, right. right. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm out of luck. I don't need you in my brain, so I don't like it. What was the first record you ever bought as a kid? Sitting right behind me on the wall. Now, if you had Zoom, you cheapskate. Um, I've seen <clears> that <throat> wall, too. Yeah, it's wow. uh, great, great Balls of Fire. Really? Yeah. Right on Sun, huh? Yes, and it's signed by Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, wow. And um, the second one, Venus. Uh, uh, Bobby Venton. No? Frankie Avalon. That one might think. Damn it. Yeah. Yes, Frankie Avalon. Frankie so Evelyn. you see, um, right away I'm going, who's going to tell me I can't like both of these songs? Well, because back then both were considered pop music. They yes. They didn't call it rock. Pop as in popular. Right. It's on the radio. I like it. Uh, I, I don't need any smarty asses and smarty pantses categorizing, sticking things in niches or in a genre. They, they, they're telling you this belongs there. I say... Bafango. Can yeah, you that, say that? Yeah. Oh, Fangul. Yeah. Fangulo. Yeah, that's the word. You can't say that one. No, yeah, no, no. That's bad. Yeah, I'm going to bleep it out because I don't want to get in trouble on the internet. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's bad. So uh, uh, my, my thought is, hound dog, then love me tender. Right. You see what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. I, uh, don't tell me I can't like both. Right. Don't tell me. If you don't, if you only like one thing, I'm going to go for you. I, I don't care what you like. I care what I like. And music is this big, huge, all-encompassing gift to the human spirit. 
Unfortunately, everybody under 18 doesn't feel the same anymore. <clears throat> well, they grew up in a world that they, listen, if we were 18, we would be just like them. Well, I'll tell you what, yeah, we, would, yeah. we, would, we would only be able to respond to the environment and the technology that we grew up in. Here's my theory. If you think I'm, how old are you now? Like 50? 50, right on the button. Okay. My daughter's your age. Your, when's your birthday? February 9th. My daughter turns 50 next month. I can't, I don't believe that I'm saying that. Anyway, <clears throat> let's look at it. Um, see, I'm 74. I have no idea what we were talking about. But what did we just, where were we? Talking about music and if we were 18 oh, I today. Got it. Yep. Okay. When I was making music and all the bands and singers and songwriters like us, we were living in the golden age because never again and never before had so many people had the ability to have long careers in music than the bands of our generation because we were lucky by birth in that, in that window, music was central to young people's lives. It was, it was more important than anything. Okay. There weren't distractions like today. You know, you got a thousand magazines, you've got the internet. You, you, my theory is this. I wouldn't be doing this show you right now at 74 years old, all these years later talking about the music I made if there was internet porn. Do you think <laughs> a, you think a 15 you think a 15 year old male is going to well I got I got let me say I got I got boobs or sticks. I'm sorry. Yeah. Sticks ain't winning that. Are they? No, say it to yourself. If you were 15 and 14 you see all this stuff, you go you you're going to you're not going to just be focused on music. But that's where I grew up. I lived at that time. So that's why people still come and hear my music in concert. Uh, they, they think this was the greatest time. They love the music because all the music of everyone's youth is the greatest music, no matter how. And so the people that are 18 right now, most of them are going to think this is the greatest music uh, because that's when they're the freest to experiment and look around and not be encumbered by babies and rent. You know what I'm saying? I do. So... Okay, so boys and girls, if if there are porn sites, I don't know if we'd know Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> that, don't know. Wow, that is profound, Dennis DeYoung. I've been listening to the early Sticks albums, the wooden nickel stuff, and uh, I gotta tell you. It's some great, a great album, especially that, that first album, Sticks One, as the cool kids call it. And the first song, Movement for the Common Man, yeah, excellent. And that whole man on the street interview bit in the middle, it's just brilliant. Kids nowadays, that's the whole thing. Too much money. They got too much money. Uh, they don't have to go out and uh, struggle and work for uh, things that, uh, like when uh, I was uh, growing up, had to do and I was lucky if I got a job uh, delivering uh, hats at a hat store for 25 cents uh, uh, per hat. Too much money today is with the, the young kids. Uh, everything is handled to them, and uh, that's why they are the way they are. A couple of things grabbed me about that. The most obvious one is not much has changed politically from what was being said on that cab driver talking. Yeah. Is that something? 50 years. Um... 
I, I, during the Grand Illusion album, I came up with the most important line I think I've ever written for Sticks, and that was, so if you think your life is complete confusion, because you never win the game, just remember it's a Grand Illusion, and deep inside we're all the same. When I said that in 77, deep inside we're all the same, my point was, do not look at us and think that we're smarter than everybody, because we, we, we spend a lot of time in our bedrooms playing our instruments, yeah. and now we're up on the stage and with the good light and the big sound, we're creating an illusion. That's what we're doing. I said, don't be fooled by the radio, okay? Mm -hmm. So fundamentally what you're saying is things don't change because human beings don't change that much. Right. Uh, when I see politicians or all the smarty pants on what, what people claim are news stations when all they are is a political arm for a party, I, I just say, you know what? If you're going to start legislating against the way human beings have always behaved, quote unquote, human nature, you're yep. going to lose. Right. People tend to respond the same way for thousands of years. And so when you look at that, and uh, that was in the heyday of the hippie. Right. Okay. And so you've got people from World War II, the greatest generation, not quite understanding what happened to their spoiled baby boomer kids because they had sacrificed so much through a depression and a world war and somehow placed America on top of the world heap. So when they look around, they looked and they saw what all people say. I think one, there was a Roman soldier once who turned to his wife and said, what's the matter with the kids today? This is historical. Yeah. Okay, so that's what all that was. That was the idea of uh, the guy who produced the record, John Ryan. He was a true hippie. Oh, baby. You know, th you, this guy walked in the room and it was patchouli oil. I mean, this seriously. Yeah. Who uses the, why, why wear patchouli oil? Who likes that scent? I think crazy people. Anyway, <laughs> so th that's what that was and had nothing to do with us. People like it or they don't. Uh, I, me, I can take it or leave it. Fanfare for the Common Man is on there. That was a pretty good uh, a choice. Aaron Copeland, he doesn't suck. So we did it as a rock band five years before Emerson, Lake, and Palmer that's right. did. And the first song is called Children of the Land. And so there we were, guys that didn't know anything about songwriting, and I speak for myself. We were a cover band who got a record deal, and we, we, we bludgeoned our way through the first album. But we absolutely defined our style of music, which was, I, I used to say it was white guys playing loud and singing high. But <clears throat> we, we had a bit of prog, we had, hard, we had a basic rock and roll, American Heartland rock and roll band, and we had those harmonies, and we had that, that sensibility between pop and, and rock. Uh, and that was a year before Queen's first album. I mention it all the time because we weren't successful to after Queen. Right. Uh, people think that somehow, you know, we, it, it was just two bands on either side of, uh, of the planet just doing what came natural to them. And so that's, that, that, that's what that album is. If anyone makes comparisons between the two bands, those are lazy comparisons because aside from great singers and great songwriters, your approach is completely different. I think they used to write in every album those synthesizers. Well, what? I thought, well, then I, what am I going to, do I have to go work for the WPA? You know, I mean, don't I get to be in the band because it, what, because I got a mini Moog and an ARP? Please. So I don't know if that's a badge of courage. I'll never understand it. You know, no, it's like, you, you, it's you, like you, saying, yeah, uh, this album contains no people with underpants. I don't think it matters. Right. Because you used it tastefully. Yeah. And what's a synthesizer? Have to, what's the difference between that and a Hammond organ or a piano? They're keyboards that make sounds. Right. Uh, I mean, that's just it. So uh, anyway, here's the thing about Queen and Sticks. They sang high. 
they did rock. We were proggier than they were. They were always more of a hard rock band right. with really, think about this, a really English music hall vaudevillian flavor to the lot of things they did. Oh, absolutely. That's Freddie yeah. on that piano, Ulysses, even Brian. Uh, that stuff is really, it's kitschy, a lot of that stuff. Queen's great, one of my favorite bands from, from our era. And I love Freddie Mercury. I'll tell you what I said the first time I heard Bohemian Rhapsody. I saw it at the heard it and saw it at the same time. I watched it and I went, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, wait a minute, that bar is a little high. So, um, but 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 truthfully, nothing they ever did ever like it, hate it, think it's up, down, blue, white compares to that masterpiece. Which gets back to my point that if a rock critic or whatever that Dingleberry calls himself, I had looked him up to see if he was still alive. I was going to call him personally. You listen to that album and you didn't hear Bohemian Rhapsody. You have no business writing about music. You better go back to Barber College. That's what I think. Because you heard it once and you went, what the hell? How do you not identify genius? Well, if you don't know nothing. So I don't know where I'm talking. I'm talking fast because no. I'm 74 years old. Who knows what's going to happen? Got to get it all in now. Yeah. Remember Dave Mosh, the critic? He yes. was talking about Queen once, and he took offense to We Will Rock You. He said they're the first fascist rock band. He, I mean, how, how out of your mind do you have to be to, to take offense to the fact that they're saying, he, he took it as, the audience isn't going to rock us, we will rock you, and you'll like it. Who the hell thinks like that? I don't know, but I don't anything about Dave Marsh. As far as, did he invent the Marsh pit? I don't know, but let me just say this. It's that sneaky extremely left-leaning idea that a lot of these guys clung to, which I told you in the beginning was anti-establishment, anti-the man, mm. anti-the rich guy. Hey, kill the rich. That's where a lot of these guys come from because people who write, <clears throat> when you, they're always complaining about the media is too liberal in this country. Well, of course it leans left. It has to because if you want to be a writer or a journalist, you are going to fight for the underdog. That's what you do. You ha you're a dreamer. You're an idealist. This is where you come from. So when Dave Marsh says this, I never heard that. But I'm thinking, I say, say to myself, what does that have to, I don't even, I have to say you. Uh, it, it's, um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I, well, I can't believe it. What is that? We will rock you, but you're a bitch. And I got to listen to the words because the words to me were per pretty innocuous anyway. Yeah. But basically it was, we will rock you. Everybody put their arms up in the, in the hall and scream, put on your big lighters and enjoy the power of the music. Dave Marsh. He sees you're Nuremberg. A, you're an idiot. Yeah. You're an idiot. Okay. So okay. if you don't like Queen, that's what you'll say. Right. If you like Queen, you'll never, you won't even think that in a million years. I'm going to back up a little bit and change gears. You were a school teacher? Two and a half, almost three years. Yes. What grade? I mean, was it high school? Junior high. Junior high. Have you ever run into any of the students years later at, at a concert saying, oh my God, Mr. DeYoung? Yes. Yeah. All the time. All, all the time. The time. They always come to my Facebook, you taught me. I was the district music teacher, so I had like 1,500 students. Yeah. They took the calendar year and divided it into four schools. So I spent a quarter in each. So I had a lot of kids. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I, I only did it because my parents, all my, my dad ever said to me is, you see my hands? He was a printer. He always had constant blue ink mm. on his hands. Don't dig a ditch like me. Be the first one to go to college in our family. So I was. So I, I went to college and uh, all the time wanting to be in the Beatles. And then I got married and had a baby girl. 
And I, I got a record deal after I'd been married for two and a half years, had a baby girl, and been teaching. So I came at rock and roll for, well, I like to feel as a more adult, mature point of view. Yeah. Because when you have a wife and you have a dependent and you have a child, okay, the whole idea of unfettered debauchery, sex, drugs, rock and roll, and uh, all that stuff, it's, it's not like you're uh, a 22-year-old with no obligations to anybody. So that's who I was. And, you know, I've been married 51 years, same woman. And, uh, uh, you know, I raised two kids on the road for the most part. I'm different. That's unheard of. Well, Virtually unheard of. The McCartney's I was thinking that. Yeah. 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 He's my idol. I didn't do it because of that. We got married in the same year, coincidentally. But you know something, though? He stayed a bachelor basically through the whole run of the Beatles. So he got that debauchery out of his system. But for you to, you know, here you are. You're a kid in the candy store now. You've got everything around you. And yet you were grounded enough not to blow the real name of the game, which is family and fatherhood and being a husband. It's much more important, much more enduring than being in a rock band. I've always been suspicious of people who really like me a lot without knowing me mm. based on an illusion that I've created. I have a great suspicion of anyone who feels that way. I've written about it for years. And consequently, because I was older and more mature, had responsibility, I did the best I could to try to keep it all in perspective. Um, it's not easy no. because people, they're, they're, you know, they're going to act a certain way uh, because they think you know something that they don't and they want to get that from you. And I've always told them, I don't know nothing. What are you talking about? <laughs> what? I play accordion. And what now? Now me? <laughs> I say, Jesus. So that's it. Rock and roll radio was the driving force behind pop culture, geez, for a good 50 years. Sticks 2 comes out, 73. You release Lady, doesn't go anywhere. Well, we had a local record company called Wooden Nickel. Now, do I have to define it any more than that? <laughs> um, were they a subsidiary of any major label or just an independent? I think they were, I think they were a subsidiary of uh, Italian Pizzeria. Ah. Um, no, no, they were they RCA. Okay. I'll never forget when our, our album finally went gold for Sticks 2 and Lady was a hit. Two and a half years later, right. I took, I, I, at the, at the presentation of the gold albums at a concert we were playing, Ken Glancy, president of RCA, flew in to present us with the albums. And I said, you know, you only spent like, uh, $250 to promote this. And he said, what? I said, yeah. I mean, what'd you expect? And so later on, he called me. He said, you were wrong about that. It was $167. <laughs> that's true. I believe And that's it. a true story. And yeah. I thought, well, okay. So look, it's a music business. It doesn't happen. It's not, in other words, you are not awarded the prize for excellence. You are awarded the prize for people spending money to promote your album, to make people aware of it. So eventually there's money. Right. But if they don't promote... It's the, the age-old story of the tree falling in the forest. So Lady fell in the forest, and nobody heard it. So Sticks 2 was essentially seven songs, five of them were mine. It was me coming out as a songwriter. To that point, I had never written a song by myself. Uh, and Lady was the first one I wrote by myself and sang on an album as a lead vocalist. Mm. So I, I was trying to be a songwriter. Didn't know if I could be. Didn't know if I would be. 
If you put 50 people or 50,000 in a room, Double D, I'll entertain them. I'm good at that. I know how to do that. Being a songwriter, I don't know how. So I did it. Five of the songs were mine. Uh, of the seven, it was a failure by any stretch of any imagination. And so I spent the next two Woodnickel albums trying to be somebody other than me because I was convinced they hate you. Dennis, you, you haven't fooled anybody. You have no talent. So when uh, WLS, the biggest radio station in the Midwest, started playing Lady by accident in 19, November of 74, it was stunning. It was a surprise. And this one man, Jim Smith, made the decision to play Lady. He doesn't do that. You don't know who I am. You never even heard of Lady. It would have been one of those songs that went to the bottom of the deep blue sea. Mm. So that's how ephemeral life is. And I learned a very valuable lesson from it. It goes like this. You ain't shit. This is the universe. We don't care about you. Nothing's fair. And you deserve nothing. It happens. Oh, look at there. It did. It doesn't happen. Same thing. So I always proceeded with humility from that point, knowing that by a quirk of fate, suddenly a lot of people liked me. And I'm thinking without the quirk of fate, you know, Dennis, go back to teaching school. So if you if you if you accept that, rather than being I don't know Justin Bieber, you know you just figure out where your Johnson is, <laughs> and millions of people like you, love you, idolize you, and you're 16 or whatever you are, you got no chance to be normal. You don't because you're going to believe I did this, and I deserve it. No, you don't. Mm-hmm. Thing, the universe spun in your direction. Good for you. Do you have talent? Okay. A lot of people with talent. Yep. You know what? If it doesn't spin your way, too bad. That's just the way it is. And I've always taken that attitude with me, with everything I've done, knowing, man, it could have gone the other way, easily gone the other way. And I would have spent the rest of my life believing that I didn't have any talent because we don't know we have talent unless someone else says so. Right. And I believe the best way they can say it is taking money out of their pocket and proving it. And giving you also a chance to make one or two clunkers. Give yourself some time. There's none, the music business stopped that right around the whole Frampton Comes Alive album came out and basically said, we want big, more, one after the other. Famously, Dylan, his first album didn't sell shit. They gave him a chance, though. They didn't just drop him. Yeah, well, in those days, record companies, most of them, realized that most artists need a little time to develop. And they were more interested. The reason I told the band, when After Lady was a hit, Warner Brothers and CBS and A&M all courted us. Because well, we had a hit record and a gold album. Yeah. Okay. And then the only one that made sense to me was A&M because they were committed to the idea of us, even if the next album didn't sell. They wanted to develop. They were into artist development. So I said, let's try these guys. They'll stick with us. And that happened. And it's important because all you got to do is listen to the first Queen album, the first, usually the first album by anybody except Boston. But you know, here the thing with Boston is they were that album was a, a landmark that everything else was couldn't even compete with it. Right. So for us, we gradually got better. And that's a testament to people understanding the idea of people who make this stuff musicians, singers, they're, they're, they're just goons. They're mooks. <laughs> they're kids trying to figure shit out. Right. They, you know, no one's born completely foreign. 
And that was, <laughs> speaking of lady, I was listening to another interview you did recently and you, you were kind of opining on the, where did I get the whoa, whoa, whoa from? And I'm screaming at my TV because I know exactly where you got it from. Tom Jones, she's a lady. Tell me I'm wrong. She's a lady. Whoa, whoa, whoa. She's a lady. What year was that? That was 70. Maybe. Ah. Uh? It's possible. Yeah. I never I, I never thought about it because I love Tom Jones. I didn't See? have his records. Maybe. See, this is going to be the story I tell my grandkids. One day, I was talking to Dennis DeYoung. Yeah, your grandkids will go like this. Who? So, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. No, maybe. Right? I could. I kept thinking, where does that, you know, it, it's possible because well, all this music is just floating around. That's in it. one ear, out the other. You know, I thought it was because I was listening to Court of the Crimson King and uh, Lords and Ladies and all that bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I, I don't know. Maybe that's just good. At, why not? Why not? Let's go with that. Yeah, because I was thinking, what's new, Pussycat? Whoa, whoa, whoa. But listen, it's all songs. Maybe it was what? I don't know. There ain't nothing original in the world. It's just all going around. Everybody nicks off everybody. Not on purpose. No. They, but, they do that no. sometimes, too. Oh, yeah. But uh, let me think. What Did I ever do that purposely? Uh, I'm sure I did. But uh, I'm not admitting it. So, uh, you know, about, about Pete Townsend, the power cord and all that stuff. I said, I said, Pete, you got enough money. I don't, you don't have to have any mind. But uh, yeah, I always thought that um, I love Keith Moon and Pete, and I love that power cord thing. And uh, listen to Come Sail Away. years ago i was listening to that awful vh1 behind the music of sticks that's my constitutionally protected opinion I'm not saying you're saying it but it was just such a one-sided hatchet job against you there was something that just struck me i've been in a band for 25 years i ran my band and you mentioned a great line you said sticks was a democracy where i was the president what was i don't know how to word this artfully what was the deal what you were a proven commodity you made that band a lot of money. You made them, gave them a lot of success with your work. Not that it wasn't a team effort, but what was with all the whining and the crying and who wants power? And how does how does that happen? Well, it's simple. It's everything. You know what they say: uh, follow the money from Watergate. Um, in in ninety six and ninety seven, we got together with the original band with Tommy Jy, myself, and Chuck. John had passed away. And we did two huge comeback tours in, in 96 and 97. The band hadn't been together uh, since 1991. And with Shaw, not since 83. Okay, so we do the tour 96, 97. 98, we start to make our first studio album. And I got sick. I got a virus. Didn't know what it was. I was so sick. Three weeks, I'm, I'm into it. I finally go to the doctor. Doctor, I, I, I can't, I have no energy. I'm this, I'm that. I lost my taste of s smell. I mean, my sense of smell, my sense of taste are gone. You know what they did? They looked at me and they went, well, let's do some tests. Everyone was trying to figure out what was wrong with me from this flu that just devastated me. Okay, so I, I went down. I was down for the count. Couldn't figure out why, why I couldn't get better. So later in the year, Tommy sends me a bunch of demos, Tommy Shaw, about for working on the album. So I get out of my sick bed because I like the music so much. Let's make this album. I'll do it when I can. Um, and so then in, uh, this is like, I want to see, I want to see the late summer fall of 98. 
uh, in February 99, we're like two-thirds of the way through the album, and they want me to commit to a tour. And I said, guys, just give me a little more, uh, give me another six months to recover. I said, I figured out why I always feel bad. My eyes can no longer deal with sunlight and, and bright lights. That's what's causing my fatigue. That's what's making me feel like I constantly have the flu. Uh, and so they didn't like that. Well, Tommy actually didn't like it. He said, without a tour, I don't think I want to finish this album, the Brave New Album. Well, he said, in fact, he emphatically said he didn't. Well, the record company didn't like that. They forced us back in the studio. And then there was only three of us left. It was J.Y. and Tommy and me. Chuck had full-blown AIDS. He had retired. Right. So it was just three of us. And they wanted me to commit to a tour. They knew I was sick. I think they thought that I would never tour again because they knew how sick I was. And so they said, show up on this date to rehearse for the tour or we're going to replace you. That's what they did. Tommy and J.Y. and me. So when they went on to do... That was in, uh, let's see, May of 99. So when they went to do the Behind the Music, it was under that condition that they did the interview. And they'd been out there touring for a year and a half with my replacement and not paying me any money mm. for the use of the Sticks trademark, which I was entitled to, right. not giving me a dime. And I was hoping that we would just reconcile. That's my hope. I didn't sue anybody. And then I saw the, the Behind the Music and I thought, well, these guys, what are they doing that for? Because fundamentally, if you want to go off and play 150 shows a year and play every place in the world, and I only want to do 90 shows, right? right? I understand that. Okay, we have a difference of opinion on how much we work. That's fine. But what they did, because they didn't want to say this simple fact, yet De Young was sick. We didn't think he was coming back, and we didn't want. We wanted to replace him and go on the road and make money. You don't tell the fan base that. They said, well, you remember back 27 years ago when he wrote Mr. Roboto? Do you remember when he wrote Babe? We, we didn't like that music. He was leading the band in the wrong direction. So they flipped the story, which was never true. Because I would ask you, in 27 years after Mr. Roboto, right? After two huge tours and we're making a new album, what was the, what, why would that why, even be brought? Why, why would not? you bring that? Why not? Well, this, we're talking, no, there are no robots on our new album, as far as I can tell. <laughs> okay, so that's all they did. They created a, a false narrative. And that nonsense about, it's got to be my way or highway, you know, that kind of. Why it, am I on the, hey, double D, why am I on the highway? Yeah, no kidding. Am I, is somebody no else kidding. on the No kidding, that's right. Who, who's on the highway? Me. And look, it, it was just a lie. They wanted to go out on the road and get rid of me. And the first thing they did is they formed a corporation, TMB, called Two Man Band. Do I have to tell you anything else? No. Okay, look, that happened. But the problem was they kept telling the story, and all they were trying to do was discredit me professionally and personally, which was unnecessary. Because what they ended up doing was taking this loyal fan base, which had given us four triple platinum albums in a row consecutively, mm. this fan base, they came back in 96 and 97 and loved us and sent them at odds with warring with each other, taking sides that remains to this day. To what this a, day. What a shame. Why? They got the name, okay? And there was no need to, because really, I don't feel that way about those guys, okay? Donald, I do not feel that way about him. 
Okay? I, I, I feel like, look what we did. I wrote these songs, you wrote those songs, we came together in a room, we each made each other better, and then the record came out, we can all take credit, you know, for the record, because that's our talents as a collective that made that work. It wasn't one, wasn't a guy, wasn't a guy going, I'm the dictator! Do was a, what? That was, that never happened. It wouldn't when have worked. I, it wouldn't have worked. Let me just say this. That when I said on Behind the Music that I was the president, some who sided with them thought I said I was the dictator. No. What is the president? Can the president do whatever he wants? I've no. seen a couple of presidents who think they can do whatever they want. And well, and now the, one of them's in Mar-a-Lago. I mean, you, <laughs> no, and I don't mean that as a political no, statement. I get it. You're right. You no. can't. No, because there's Congress. Right. There's the Supreme Court. Right? But you also said it in the interview, by the way. But they only heard the bit they wanted to hear. Oh, I'm, I look it. I love that band. I still love that band. And I've said from the beginning, please, fans, don't scream at each other. Before that, behind the music, was anybody saying Tommy's a poo-poo face? Dennis is a, a, no. a creep? This is, why, why do that? Because I believe they thought they were going to, they aimed at my head to shoot me and shot sticks in the heart. Yeah. That's what they did. Yep. And I'll never understand it. And um, that's it. That's my, all I got to say on that. Can I just ask, have you been in touch with them on any musical level in terms of maybe let's do it one more time. Let's get back together. Let's make a, just go in the it's, studio. Is it? It's it's Tommy's band. It's been Tommy's band for a long time. Mm. Um he was he was approached by booking agents this past year about you know next year is the fiftieth, and it's up to Tommy. He said no. I have never fought it. I have no axe to grind or hatchet to bury. I just wanted to go on on the road one more time, and say thank you to the fans, who have given us this incredible life. Right. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about what Sticks did, and it's about the people most responsible for your Mercedes Benz. Twenty six East, fine two. Probably say the name wrong. Jim Peterick. 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 I'm sorry. From Ides of March from Survivor. And he also wrote "Hold On Loosely" for Thirty Eight Special. Did I read that? Co-writer. Co-writer. Jim was my co-writer on eight songs on both volumes. The other, how many does that leave? Eleven. Eight, nineteen, fourteen. I wrote by myself. Okay. Jim was my, my my songwriting partner, and it was at his urging that I even do this project because I didn't really want to do it anymore. Uh, write music, and uh, I said I had my fill of that, and the music business is a shambles. But he talked me into it. No, Jim and I wrote together eight songs. They're sprinkled out, I think, four on one and four on the other. But I produced everything, and I mixed everything by myself. Was that all done during <laughs> the pandemic or no? No, we started this project 2017, and we started writing songs together. <clears throat> Might have been 216, and then both of us tour. We just took our time, and then when I was satisfied, we have it. We had enough songs. Because look, at, if you can't write a good song, don't stop annoying people. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's all about songs. So uh, we, we started writing, and then we we did it over a period of years, and on volume two, four of the songs were written during the pandemic, but all the other ones were written uh, before there was any, before we knew what the word COVID meant. Right. Did you have Tom Morello on there on The Last Guitar Hero? Yeah, he's playing a lead on The Last Guitar Hero. I call him the, the Great Houdini. 
because he's constantly pulling rabbits out of his hats when he plays that guitar. Yeah. So, you know, I thought, hey, who's the last guitar hero? Maybe him. Yeah. Are you going to tour it? Look, here's what I say about all the people who are running out on tour. Two reasons. One, they're very needy. Someone look at me and applaud. They live to be on the stage. Got it? Or they have big alimony payments. Those are the only two reasons. I mean, because I am not going to put my audience, nor me, in jeopardy until I am sure we have a handle on this thing. And guess what? We don't. Right. Okay. We do not. And I'm not going to... Let me go... The way I travel, commercially, in hotels, rent cars, right? I'm not going anywhere till I am really doggone sure that it's safe for both me and the audience. I think that we call that common sense. Yeah, that's exactly now, right. I don't, I don't care if anybody else wants to run out and do it. That's, that's your decision. It's not for me. Like I said, I'm 74. I'm not 64. I'm 74. And I refuse to put anyone's life in jeopardy just so I can play Come Sail Away again. The offers yeah. are wonderful and they're lucrative and there's several. But once again, I'm going to watch this year. Because now they're talking in Chicago about, are we going to have Lollapalooza? And the only reason they're going to have it is because the people in charge, the mayor's office, have already committed to this. Yeah. And I think to myself, okay, let's put a bunch of young people, yep. hundreds of thousands of them, in a spot for four days. You know young people. They cannot be killed because they're living forever. And, and let's run that experiment and see what happens. God willing, and the creek don't leak, Things will work out well, and I'll be back on the road next year. Speaking of Joe Cocker. Yes. We now have Delta Lady. Moving on the country, and I find you. Yeah, okay. So, um, Written by? Come on. Uh, 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 Dan Russell. Yeah. And what, what does think? he win? Dennis, if I answering that correctly, you... No. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I know. Anyway, I know. listen, I know some stuff. I've been around. The thing, I love Joe Cocker. I got Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Anyway, yep. we, we did shows with him back in the 70s. All those years of touring. Did, did you ever count how many gigs you guys have done? No, I have no idea. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be uh, averse to finding out. Yeah. But uh, I don't do that kind of stuff because at this point, it's a blur. Yeah. And uh, you, re you, you remember certain shows sometimes because they had meaning, but the craziest shows you'll remember clearly. And you think, why would I remember that? Well, that's I just mean, what I was going to ask you. What's the worst gig experience you ever had? Oh, dear God. I mean, how long is this show? 45 hours. Yeah, that's what it would take. Um, well, one of the worst was when we backed up Frank Zampa. Keel Auditorium in St. Louis holds 10,000 people. We were put on the bill with Frank, and Frank was lied to by the promoter and the booker. It was an evening with Frank Zappa, and suddenly we show up for sound check, and he's at the soundboard, and he's just, he's furious. We weren't sticks yet. Lady hadn't broken. We were, uh, you know, these guys with the, you know, with the high heel shoes and the glam look. Yeah. Uh, probably everything he hated about music anyway, uh, and we show up. And he decides, okay, I can see the contract. I'm going to kill somebody. We'll let him play. So in a 10,000-seat hall, he allowed us to use three microphones, one for each vocalist. No mics on any instrument. Do you know what that sounds like? Unfortunately, I do. If you, you're a musician, you said. Yes. If you're in a 10,000-seat room and all you have is your amplifiers, you know what you hear? <laughs> <laughs> you can't hear exactly it. Right. Sounds like a roar someplace. Yeah. 
Uh, we played that show, and uh, at the end, they were people were just booing, you know, relentlessly. Now, was it? No, it wasn't us we were booing. It was the fact that it was just three guys that saw her with the vocal, the voices. Right. Uh, so that's not good. That's not a good one. What about the best one? I always say the Montreal Forum, as we opened for Bad Company in 1975, we'd struggled. Lady become a hit. We released Equinox. It hadn't done anything yet because it just came out. And we got some gigs up in Montreal, at the Forum in Montreal and the Maple Leaf Gardens to open up for Bad Company. And what we didn't know was our album was breaking up there. There wasn't Google. You know what I'm saying? Right. You didn't know what Canada, you might as well be in Yugoslavia uh, as, as Montreal. Right. So we went up there and we're playing the forum and we come out and we're playing. The people are just, they're, they're, they're pretty doggone happy to see us. So then we stop and we play Sweet Man of Blue, a song off Equinox. And I go to the microphone and start to sing it. The whole place stands up. And start singing the song. And I, you know, those people, not, not, like probably 60% of them don't even speak English. Yeah. And they're singing word for word, like the whole, you know, like you see in a soccer game. Yep. <laughs> because, and they're singing. I'm going, what the, <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> no. And at the, they just wouldn't stop applauding us. It was like embarrassing, sort of. Anyway, I looked at the guys and I said, you know what? We are going to go where we dreamed we always would. Mm-hmm. And we did. Mm-hmm. But that moment, it, it, I'm here in front of people who don't speak English, a lot of them. They're singing a song I wrote, note for note. That's got to mean something. That's the power of music right there. Of course. Oh, 
dressed in black. Go like a dinosaur and never come in. against the machines tom morello on lead guitar that's the last guitar hero from dennis DeYoung's latest and presumably final studio album 26 east volume 2 and i want to thank dennis for being on the it's only rock and roll podcast that man is an interviewer's dream all you gotta do is throw out a topic and he's off to the races and as an extra bonus the guy actually knows what he's talking about unlike me who's been faking my way through broadcasting for over a year you're like a fine brajol thank you Remember, all of our shows are available for streaming at www.itsonlyrockandrollpodcast.com as well as iHeartRadio, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and everywhere podcasts are spewed out and thrown out into a pile neatly in the corner where the dustbin sits in the kitchen. Hmm? Visit us on social media at Facebook and Instagram. It's only rock and roll podcast, all typed out as one word, no spaces or commas, please. And now you can add YouTube to the list if that's how you choose to listen to your podcast. Hey, who am I to judge? Don't forget to visit our official merchandise store. Links are on the website. Remember, Father's Day is about a year and a half away. And we're going to leave you with another cut off of 26th East Volume 2. And we hope to see you all here next time on the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast.
told us tales of gods and kings And to beware when sirens sing But when we heard the clarion call All the people laughed and built a wall How we joyfully rehearsed the tune Like howling wolves at devil's moon We've all been taught our lines So righteous with our holy signs We were deaf to the lies We were blind and unkind and unwise
when we crossed the bridge of sighs We bowed and said our last goodbyes Then set the course for better days Then once again we sailed away